John Piper has called the book of Romans the greatest letter ever written, and he will get no argument from me. Over the last couple of years, as we've been working our way through this letter, I have come to love it more and more. I've come to esteem it more and more. I've come to wonder at the goodness and wisdom of God that is revealed in this book. It is the most theological book that we have in all of the Bible. Uh, now, all parts of the Bible, every book of the Bible, teaches doctrine, teaches theology. But this book comes the closest to a theological treatise of anything that we have in all of Scripture. It sets forth truth, doctrines revealed by God in a systematic way. We've seen this as we've worked our way through the first 11 chapters of this book. The first 15 verses of chapter 1, Paul introduces the letter. And he tells some of the occasion for writing the letter, some of his aspirations of going to this church, meeting this church, and being a blessing to them and receiving blessing from them. And then in verses 16 and 17 of the first chapter, he announces the theme of the whole letter. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first, then to the Greek. In verse 17, he goes on to say, for in it is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's the burden of the whole letter is to show what it means to live by faith as those who have been declared righteous by God, who in God's sight are indeed righteous. And so having announced the theme, he immediately launches into an explanation of this gospel message that reveals this incredible truth of how the just can live by faith. And he does so starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, all the way down through verse 20 of chapter 3, elaborating the truth about sin. The wickedness of sin and the universality of sin. How everyone, Jew and Gentile, everyone has sinned against God and fallen short of what God requires of us. Therefore, how everyone, because of sin, is under condemnation before God. But then in verse 21 of chapter 3, down through the end of chapter 5, against that dark backdrop of sin, he begins to elaborate on this wonderful message of grace that God justifies ungodly people. That sinners, like us, can be accepted by the holy God through the provision that He makes in Jesus. We are justified by God's grace alone as we have faith alone in Jesus Christ Alone. When you trust Christ, He accepts you for Christ's sake. And you stand before Him forever forgiven, righteous. Then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, Paul elaborates what it means to be in union with Christ. To be united to Him by faith. It's not just something that's done outside of us, but we actually become indwelt by Christ, through His Spirit, we're, we're one with Him. We're united to Him. And we learn to live by His Spirit. We're able to walk according to His Spirit. And by the power of His Spirit, we're able to turn away from sin and to keep trusting Jesus as we follow after Jesus. 
In chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul is determined to vindicate the righteousness of God in his dealings with Jews and Gentiles, both in history in the past as well as in the future. God's ways are right. God is faithful. He always has been. He always will be. All through this letter, up to this point, Paul has emphasized the grace of God in the gospel. That is the only hope that people like you and me, anybody, anywhere has. It's that God will not deal with us according to our sin because we have fallen short of what He requires of us. We have not measured up to what He calls us to be and do. Our only hope is that God will deal with us in grace. That He'll show us grace. The good news is that's exactly what he's done. That's the gospel. He sent his son into the world in order to demonstrate, to shower grace upon people like us who desperately need grace. And so the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the testimony of God's provision of grace for people who deserve the opposite. And so we read how Jesus came into the world and He lived the life that we're called to live. We're obligated to live. We cannot live. He did it by obeying God's commandments completely. Never once sinning. And by that obedient life, He earned righteousness. And He earned it not for Himself. He didn't need it. He earned it for people like you and me, sinners who do need righteousness that we can't supply. And then as the only righteous man who ever lived... He voluntarily laid down his life on the cross, enduring God's just wrath against sin that he himself never committed, but that his people committed. And as he represented us before God, as our substitute, he absorbed God's wrath on the cross. He descended into hell. He experienced judgment for his people's sake. He's done this so that every sinner who hears what Jesus has done and turns from sin, confesses sin against God, and trusts Jesus, will be saved, will be forgiven, will be justified before God. That's the gospel. That's the good news that the Apostle Paul elaborates in this book of Romans. After explaining all the wonderful theology that's embedded in the gospel for 11 chapters And especially as he reflects upon what he's just written in chapters 9, 10, and 11 about God's ways of making the gospel known both to Jews and Gentiles, Paul can't help himself upon reflection. As he brings this letter to a close, he breaks out in exclamation of praise as he starts thinking about the implications and the applications that will be chapters 12 through 16. He can't help himself. He just has to praise God. He's just written about this glorious gospel, the ways of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the judgments of God. And when he thinks about them, it's just praise God. This is our God. So he concludes this doctrinal instruction with a doxological expression in the last four verses of chapter 11. And those four verses are our text for today. We want to start looking at them today and continue in our next time together. Romans eleven thirty three through 36. It's found on page 
947 if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you. But I encourage you to get a copy of God's word in front of you. Let your eyes look at the very words that the Spirit of God inspired for us as we consider how all true theology leads to genuine doxology. Paul's a great theologian. And as a result, he's a great worshiper. He can't help himself. So hear the word of God from Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. All true theology leads to genuine doxology. That's what these verses teach us. These verses are a doxology. That is, they are an expression of praise to God. We can see this even in the way that the Apostle Paul puts them together. You'll note that these verses are more exclamation than they are instruction. There are six sentences in these four verses. And of those six sentences, only one of them is indicative. Only one of them states a matter of fact. That is the first sentence in verse 36. The rest of these sentences are exclamatory in nature. That's why we have exclamation points after them in our English translations. Or they're rhetorical questions. And questions designed not to evoke an answer to inform the one asking, but rather to provoke thoughts in our minds that explode like bombs to express something that is inexpressible. Before we consider the points that Paul makes in these verses, let let me just point out the actual structure of this doxology, because as we look at it this time and next time, we're not going to actually follow the structure so carefully, but I want you to see the structure. In verse 33, Paul breaks out in praise to God with two exclamatory sentences. Do you see them? Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He's exclaiming something. He's not instructing. He's not making a point. He's not arguing a position. It's the expression of his heart. And then he does the same thing. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are or his ways. It's just an expression of praise. It's arising from this awareness that this is our God. Then in verses 34 and 35, he gives the basis of that outburst of praise. You see in verse 34, it's four. Four. So this is a foundation of what he's just said. And he does so by making two rhetorical questions. Offering two rhetorical questions in verse 34. And then in verse, the first sentence of verse 36, he gives the basis for those rhetorical questions in verses 35 and 34. He does it by saying, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And then he concludes with this, to him be glory forever. Amen. Now the structure is important because it helps us to follow Paul's flow of thinking. And I want us to not forget that. But what I want to do this morning and next time is to point out how this doxology arises from sound theology and how it should inform our own expressions of praise to God. And what we'll see is that 
Our praise of God, our worship of God should be shaped in three ways with regard to who God has revealed himself to be. We should praise God for his excellencies, first of all. That's what we'll look at this morning. And then we should praise God for his self-sufficiency and praise him forever. So this morning, let's zero in on that first point that we are called to praise God for his unfathomable excellencies. This we see in these opening statements. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul is saying the excellencies of God's mind, they are immeasurable. They're beyond measure. Grammatically, the way that he writes this sentence, it can be taken in two ways. Both both ways are true. Both are right. Paul could be saying that we that he is praising the depth of three things, the depth of God's riches, the depth of God's wisdom and the depth of. Of God's knowledge. That's grammatically possible. I don't think that's what he is focusing on, however, because were that true, then we'd have to go back in order to define riches from what he's written earlier in the letter rather than the way we see what he means with wisdom and knowledge in the next verses. So Paul elaborates wisdom and knowledge, and he doesn't elaborate riches. So I think that it's better to take it this second way grammatically that it can be legitimately construed that Paul here is praising the depth of the riches of two things, the wisdom and knowledge of God. He sees the deep riches, the the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge and the depth of those riches of his wisdom and knowledge. Again, I think this is preferable because... There's no further mention of riches, but there is further mention of wisdom and knowledge. And this second way of taking it is the way that the New American Standard Version, as well as the King James Version, take it. They render it like this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So taking it this way, what Paul is considering here that causes him to erupt in praise to God is how deep the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge are. He's just overwhelmed when he thinks about the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God. And you get the impression he's he's thinking, where does it end? Where's the bottom? How deep is this sea? And he can't measure it. And so he just exclaims, the depth beyond ability to measure. Knowledge, this word that means recognizing truth, having insight, grasping, being aware of information. It's knowing what to do. It's knowing where to go. And it's very closely related to wisdom, but it is distinguished from wisdom because wisdom is understanding the connection between truths. It's more than just having information. It's more than just knowing what to do, but it's also having good judgment on the best way to do what ought to be done. Wisdom doesn't simply know where to go. Wisdom knows the best way to get there. Wisdom is practical. It involves judgment. I like the way that John Murray puts it when he makes this distinction. He writes, 
Knowledge refers to God's all-inclusive and exhaustive cognition and understanding. He is all-knowing. Wisdom refers to the arrangement and adaptation of all things to the fulfillment of his holy designs. It's unfathomable. His judgments and his ways are beyond our ability to fathom. This word judgments is referring not merely to the negative condemning kind of judgments, the way we typically use the word, you know, don't judge or if you judge, you'll be judged. We're typically thinking in a condemning sense, but rather it encompasses all of his decisions, his determinations about everything that he does. And what Paul is saying here is that they are unsearchable. They're unsearchable. It's impossible to understand them completely by our own examination. His judgments are beyond our ability to grasp. And then his ways, all of his activities, especially his activities with people, including his plans, his purposes, his actions. Paul says these are inscrutable. You can't examine them enough to come up with a full and definitive understanding of them. They are unsearchable, untraceable. They're past finding out completely. Now, Paul has just written 11 chapters on God's way of salvation, his plan, his purpose, his action, and bringing about the reconciliation of sinners to himself. And now he kind of sits back and he reflects on what he has just written. And he's stunned by the glory of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the judgments of God, the ways of God. They're beyond compare. We can't fully comprehend them either. All we can do is look at them and believe what God reveals true about them. And respond as creatures before the creator of whom this is true. And like Paul, just exclaim in worship and praise. Did you notice in this doxology how Paul's praise is not built on what he completely understands and what he knows. Rather, it's built on what he knows he doesn't know. What he cannot comprehend. But what the knowledge that God has revealed about himself assures us that we do not indeed cannot fully know. This is interesting. Archimedes was a third century B.C. Greek physicist. And it's reported that one day when he stepped into a bath, he shouted, Eureka! Eureka! Because in that moment, he saw water overflow and he recognized for the first time that the water was displaced by the precise amount of the volume of the leg that he had put into the bath. And he'd come to this awareness of physical reality and understanding, and it resulted in his expression of wonder and amazement. Well, that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not saying, I got God figured out. This is wonderful. Paul's lost. He's lost in wonder and praise before the truth that God has revealed about himself and how that truth forces us to acknowledge there's more here than we can comprehend. It's better than we know. It's greater than we can measure. 
The excellencies of God exceed our abilities to comprehend. This is further emphasized in the second, the the rhetorical question in verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? See, not only are the excellencies of God's mind beyond measure, but it's also true that the excellencies of his mind are beyond comparison. Who has known the mind of the Lord? That's the question. It's not a question that Paul expects people to answer. Well, you know, there was Aristotle. There was Plato. No, it's a question that's designed to shut our mouths. It's designed to make us stop and realize nobody. Nobody. Think of anyone. Think of the greatest mind that's ever lived. Who was that person? He does not have the ability to measure the mind of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.11, Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Who's been God's counselor? There's a question for you. Who is it that's instructed God? Who does he gain knowledge and wisdom and insight from? No one. No one. You know, the Bible tells us that there's safety in a multitude of counselors. You're foolish if you make life decisions without seeking counsel. You're venturing into unsafe territory. There's safety in a multitude of counselors, but not so with God. Proverbs 15, 22 says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Not so with God. He's the source of counsel. He's the source of wisdom. We do not stop and reflect on the greatness and excellencies of God nearly often enough. And we need to take a lesson here from Paul and pause and reflect deeply on what God has revealed himself to be to us. And just let the truth of that revelation wash over us with all of its implications. He is the eternal God. There's nothing before God. Everything that exists outside of God exists because God created it. If you're trying to diagram this, you you would say God line everything else. Everything else that exists has come to existence by the word of his power. In the beginning, God. Without counsel from anyone outside of himself, anything outside of himself, God purposed to display his glory through creation and redemption. And that's a right thing for God to do. To manifest his glory, to pursue his own glory. Why? Because he is the most glorious being that exists. You see, if you and I pursue our own glory, we're guilty of idolatry. We're pursuing glory for something that is less than the greatest glory. Were God to pursue glory for something less than God, he would be guilty of idolatry. He cannot be guilty of idolatry. So he pursues his own glory as well through creation and redemption. And because this is his purpose, he created a world. And that world he designed to serve as a theater on which to manifest his glory. So through history, 
through providence, through redemption, the world was created so that God could be seen to be all glorious. He revealed a plan that is unfolding throughout history to fulfill this purpose of making his glory known. This is a profound and fundamental truth. If, if you don't get this truth underneath you clear in your thinking, you're going to be easily led astray by clever sounding teachers who will try to convince you of things that ultimately undermine the revelation of who God is and what this world is. It's so important. It's such a starting point of thinking rightly about God that we teach it to our children here in the children's catechism. The first three questions of the children's catechism are designed to teach what I've just said. Kids, you know this, right? You know the answer to those first three questions? Yeah, good. Let's tell the adults, okay? I want you to help me. Who made you? God made me. That's right. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things? For His own glory. Those children with that teaching have the foundation for understanding reality about this world, truth about God, truth about themselves. They know more than the greatest philosophers of the world who don't know God. It's essential. It's foundational. God's making His glory known in ways that we could never have anticipated. We would never have understood it had He not Revealed it to us. I mean, think about this. Just think about what you know of the Bible, right? We read in Genesis 1 and 2 that God creates this beautiful world. And He creates a, a wonderful garden in this world. And He creates image bearers. Two people who are upright, righteous, without sin. And He tells them to tend this garden, to expand this garden throughout all of creation. And yet... We see in Genesis 3 that sin comes into the world. It looks like it's destroyed God's plan. Yet the scripture teaches us that God purposefully allowed that sin to come into the world to spoil creation. In Genesis 3, it looks like God's purpose has failed, but it hasn't. God was just beginning to reveal his work of redemption. In the ashes of Adam's rebellion against his creator, God made a promise to send a savior who would redeem his people from sin. And as mankind became increasingly sinful, such that as Genesis 6, 5 and 6 puts it, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. It looked like God's ways had been thwarted. It looked like his purposes had failed. But he destroyed the earth with a flood and saved Noah and his family in order to repopulate the earth with his image bearers. God chose Abraham out of all the people on earth and he said he would make of him, he promised to make of him a great nation. He promised to prosper him and his seed forever. Yet the people who came from Abraham, the Israelites, wound up as slaves in Egypt. 
And it looked like God's purposes had failed for that Old Testament people until He raised up Moses to be their deliverer and to take them out of Egypt to the promised land. And when they come to the promised land, it looks like it's great until the people say, no, we will not go possess it. They're giants in there. We cannot prevail. And again, it looks like God's purposes have failed. Yet this too was part of His plan. After Joshua led the people of Israel into Canaan and conquered the Canaanites and established the people there, God prospered His old covenant people by raising up David to be their king. David, full of wisdom, full of justice, expanded the borders of Israel, defeated the enemies of Israel. But then his grandson, Rehoboam, became king and split the nation in two. And the kings that followed after Rehoboam did wickedness. Some of them incredible wickedness. Even offering up children, leading Israel to offer up their little ones as sacrifices to pagan gods. It looked like God's purposes had failed. But it wasn't failure. God was preparing His people for discipline. Discipline that He brought to bear upon them by sending them into exile under the harsh treatment of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. He disciplined them during exile to teach them that He alone is God. There's only one God. All of these gods of the nations, these pagan idols, they're nothing but imaginations, creations. He was preparing them for the initiation of His work of redemption. And that work of redemption began with the incarnation of His own Son. When He chose a virgin girl, young lady, and He sent the Spirit upon her in a miraculous, unprecedented way. And His Son was conceived as a real human in the womb of that Virgin Mary. Jesus grew up as a Jewish boy who never sinned. As a man, he worked as a carpenter until he began his public mission of testifying to the arrival of God's kingdom in the world. He performed miracles. He taught wisdom and things about God, gathering a following of disciples, many of whom wanted to crown him as an earthly king. But then, through lies, deceptions, trumped up charges, he was arrested, beaten, Crucified, having been falsely convicted and ended his life on a Roman cross. On that dark Friday afternoon, it looked like God's saving purposes had failed. His closest disciples certainly thought that. They were disillusioned. They didn't know what had happened. They were concerned that the mission of God's Messiah failed. Until Sunday morning. When the stone was rolled away. Jesus came back from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Demonstrated. God's purposes never fail. God always is working. God is always fulfilling that which he is determined to do. Resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It's dramatic proof. Once and for all. Forever. That indeed, God will do what He says. None of His plans will fail. And after 40 days, 
from his resurrection, when Jesus was teaching his disciples the things of God, he ascended into heaven. And then a week or so later, together with the Father, the Son of God from heaven sends the Spirit into the world to fill Christians and empower them to fulfill his mission on earth. And what is the completion of the mission that Jesus has for his people on earth? It is that we might see people saved from sin. That all of God's chosen race might be brought savingly into his kingdom. And that all of this earth might be subdued under his lordship. So the disciples continue that mission and it continues on today. It began first among the Jews. It looked great for a few years. But then the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And it looked like this mission of making disciples and scattering the gospel news throughout the earth had failed. But that was simply God's way of getting the gospel to those who were not Jews, to Gentiles. And as Paul has just written in chapter 11, causing the gospel to run among the nations of the world, that's God's way of making Jews jealous so that they too will be saved by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul, having just written this, is blown away. As is written in Revelation eleven fifteen. the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. He will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, we need to see this. We need to think about this. Do you see the, the wisdom, the knowledge, the judgments, the ways of God? They're past finding out, but what God's revealed to us about these things ought to just blow us away. It ought to make our little pea brains hurt <laughs> trying to comprehend it, trying to think the best we can about it. And with Paul, we ought to be lost in wonder and praise. This is our God. This is our God. This is the God who's given himself to us in Jesus Christ. We cannot comprehend all of God's excellencies. His thoughts are indeed higher than our thoughts. His ways are indeed higher than than our ways. We know that because He's revealed it to us. What this means is we know that we can trust Him. We know we can be assured that He's working all things together for our good because we love the Lord Jesus and been called according to His will. We know that He is taking everything into consideration, weaving everything that happens for His glory. And our good. It's as we step back. And reflect on the wisdom, knowledge, judgments and ways of God. That have unfolded in history. In saving us. In manifesting God's glory. So as we do this, we'll be strengthened to live with confidence and joy. No matter what happens in our individual lives. Because we'll be able by faith to say, God, even this. Even this. You're working out for your glory, my good. With Paul, we'll be able to praise God. This is how true theology always evokes genuine doxology. Knowing God, we cannot help but love and trust him. We cannot help but worship and praise him. The late James Boyce told the story about Elizabeth Elliot. One day when he was trying to elaborate the very points that we've been talking about this morning. 
Many, many of you will remember Elizabeth Elliot as the widow of Jim Elliot, who was together with four of his friends, a mid-century martyr of the last century. But before she became Jim's wife, and before she joined him in the jungles of Ecuador to be a missionary, she was invited by two other ladies who were trying to bring the gospel to Colorado Indians. This was a people group that didn't have a written language. And so she knew Spanish, and they looked for someone who might know Spanish and Colorado Indian. And they found such a man. And when this man came and explained his abilities and they talked about their needs, they were full of joy that Macario, his name, would be exactly who they needed to help them in this translation work. Within days, Macario was murdered, senselessly, without explanation. And the work was set back, but they continued on. It seemed pointless, terrible, and yet there was no explanation for it. Just simply something that God allowed to happen. Well, Elizabeth went on with her work, and she spent months and months and months. At the end of a year, she accumulated thousands of vocabulary cards. She had done preliminary analysis of the language. She had reduced the language to a phonetic alphabet. And she was teaching the other two ladies to know how to handle these things as well. And one day while she was out of town, all of her work was stolen. And so they prayed that God would return it. He never did. It seemed like all their work was for nothing. Well, she then married Jim Elliott and moved with Jim and other missionaries and their wives to Sandia, Ecuador, where they were bringing the gospel, trying to get the gospel to the Quechua people. And having seen some things happen with certain parts of the tribes there, they determined to branch out to a group that they called the Alka Indians. And one day, they didn't make contact with their wives back at the base like they had intended to and promised to. And the wives discovered that Jim and his four friends had been speared to death by the very people they were trying to bring the gospel to. Again, it looks like a waste. It looks like a failure. It looks like the purposes of God were thwarted. That was not all for Elizabeth Elliot. After she recovered from that, went back to Ecuador and was used of God to, with others to bring the gospel to the Alka Indians who did believe Christ and were saved, she married Addison Leach, former president of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And very shortly after their marriage, he was diagnosed with cancer. And over years, he experienced a slow, painful death from cancer. How does Elizabeth Elliot, how did she evaluate her life given these reversals, these things that seem so contrary to God's good purposes for her? Well, listen to her testimony as she reflected on it. She wrote, the experiences of my life were not such that I could infer from them that God is good, gracious, and merciful necessarily. To have one husband murdered, and another one disintegrate body, soul, and spirit through cancer is not what you would call a proof for the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks like just the opposite. But my belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct. It's by faith. To apprehend God's sovereignty working in that love 
is, we must say it, the last and highest victory of faith that overcomes the world. Brothers and sisters, that faith comes as we take God at his word. We believe what God says about himself, about his wisdom, his knowledge, his judgments, his ways. And with the Apostle Paul, with Elizabeth Elliot, we can testify. Yes. Amen. God is good. Praise God. We need to step back regularly, repeatedly, and let the truth about God in his word confront us and drive down beyond the superficial attitudes and thoughts we have of God. To stretch our minds, to affect our hearts, our affections, our emotions, so that our wills might be shaped and we will learn to choose to live ways that honor this God. That's what Paul has done here. We need to be led to worship by considering his excellencies. And it's as we do so that we will not be able to stay silent. We won't be able to sit in a congregation like this and be quiet. When praise to God is being sung. We will wish we had a thousand voices. We will wish that our hearts were better able to express the truth that we are confessing in song. But I know that there's some of you here that cannot fully relate to this because you still are unable to worship God. You're unable to praise God. And you think about God's wisdom, about his knowing everything, about his sovereign purposes unfolding, about his ways and his judgments. And those thoughts aren't comforting to you. And I understand that. I understand that. Because if it's true, if it's true that God knows everything, that God sees and understands everything, that God's working everything together, then no matter how you might wish to hide what's true of you, what's inside of you, your thoughts, you can't. God knows. He knows you. He sees you unlike anybody else can see you and know you. For some of you, that might be a terrifying thought. And I understand that. But I want to encourage you. This God who sees, who knows, who rules and overrules, has purposefully ruled and overruled in your life to bring you here today to consider this part of his word, to hear this sermon about the way that he has provided salvation for people like you. How he sent his son into the world to rescue people like you. His willingness to receive you to himself. His willingness to justify ungodly people like you and me. So friend, believe what God says about himself and his word. Consider what the Apostle Paul has shown us about the truth of God leading to worship this God and trust this God. Turn from your sin. Trust the Lord Jesus today. Believe Christ. 
He will accept you before you leave this room. You can trust Christ where you are. He will welcome you into his family. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be born again. You'll be right with your creator. Today, today, trust the Lord Jesus. And then add your voice to ours as we step back and consider our God and offer up praise and worship to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we are considering things this morning from your word that in so many ways, so many ways seem beyond us. We we look at Paul's outburst of praise and our own hearts resonate with it. But but like him, we, we don't have words. Our affections are not what they ought to be. Our minds are not what they ought to be. We, we want to praise you better. We want to honestly extol you for your greatness, your glory, your worthiness. And we won't do this without your spirit. So we're pleading with you right now. Give us your spirit, Lord. Help us. Help us to be a people who are being taught the truth of your word in such a way that we cannot help but offer up praise to you, our God. Come and open the eyes of those who have been spiritually blind to this point. Show them Christ. Draw them to Christ. Grant them new life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.